It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get over right now to Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Erica Edelberg. She's the MBS strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence, so she's going to talk to us about uh, mortgage rates and her housing research, as well as an outlook for the real estate industry. Erica, thanks so much for joining us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, mortgage rates seem to have sustainably turned lower from the over 7% that we saw for a month or so. Where, where are we right, right now? Um, as of this morning, I think we hit 623 or something like that. Yeah, on the Mortgage Banker Association 30-year rate that's, you know, a few days old. <laughs> so that's, of course, not quite taking into account today. Uh, so maybe even a little bit lower now. But that, that's a full 100 base points below where we were at the peak in October. And we are seeing that begin to filter through probably marginally into, you know, slightly higher loan applications and even a tiny bit higher refinancing. A lot of people are all excited about the 27% increase in refinancing loan increase you know, um, increases week over week, but, you know, uh, 25% of 100 when 100 is 30 times below the peak is, is not that much, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very small increase. We should really talk about numbers and the numbers aren't up that much, but they are up a little bit. And certainly the purchasing number increase is a trend to watch to see if that's pulling uh, homeowners back into the market. I also noticed the National Association of Home Buyers Index ticked up a little bit. It's still at 35 off of 31. Below 50 means they're pessimistic. Um, it's a diffusion index. So, you know, not super promising, but, you know, certainly the first reversal we've seen in quite a while. So, Erica, we were talking about that bet that Matt and I uh, set, what was that, six, seven, seven months ago, which, by the way, I think the bet was for, what was it, Dairy Queen? Yes. I think? Yeah, you had to buy me uh, dinner at Dairy Queen. But it, it was, was a specific Dairy Queen at the pilot truck stop off of Route 79 in Hebron, Ohio. And then he went, yeah, over, so you see my problem, Erica. She just gasped uh, for a radio audience. Uh, but then he went on a diet, so we couldn't go to Dairy Queen, which ended up becoming our issue. But the point is, one of my uh, basically pillars of my thesis here on that bet was simply the idea that the housing market isn't going to slow down anytime soon. Talk to us a little bit about the slowdown. Wait, the, but the housing market slowed down drastically. It did, but it's still extremely hot relative to uh, what it should be, right? I mean, Erica, you tell me. Well, it, it depends on the area we're talking about. There are certainly areas that blew up to the upside during the crisis, uh, you know, during the pandemic, like uh, Austin and Boise, Idaho, or the Canaries in the coal mine that a lot of people refer to. And their prices are down. And in fact, you know, it, it's really hard to distinguish seasonal downturns versus um, 
you know, just, just regular downturns. We'll have to wait till we see year over year numbers in about a, you know, a few months. But in general, the non-seasonally adjusted numbers offer about 10% from their highs when you look at something like existing home prices. You know, of course, they're always down a little bit. We're just we're down more than more than usual. So it's hard to kind of, you know, fully appreciate or adjust for how much of a downturn that is. And who knows, you know, with, if mortgage rates continue trending downwards a little bit, which I think, you know, at least our uh, head of rates believes that treasuries are going to continue rallying um, and mortgage spreads have been tightening very well. We've seen a great January effect this year for mortgages that that could push uh, mortgage rates back below 6%, which could encourage more homeowners to jump in, which could support the housing market a little more than, you know, if rates ha if rates didn't do that. We're still double where we were a year ago, but, you know, at the same time. Double where we were in uh, terms of? Rates. In terms they, of mortgage they, rates. Mortgage rates are yeah. around 3 you know, 3% or just Yeah, because my understanding is that the single family home market had just ground to a halt. I mean, people who were selling homes had to rent them instead because yeah. they couldn't find any buyers. Yeah, no, we definitely got into the level of, you know, as they as they technically call it, affordability being below the median um, homeowners affordability level. So um, yeah, but people are uh, people are finding ways around that. Certainly, builders are finding ways around that. I've talked to people who work for builders trying to sell new homes, and they're offering all sorts of buy downs and incentives in the rates. So you know, suddenly your six percent rate becomes a four percent rate, <laughs> um, at least for a while. So there there are ways that people are trying to get around that. The other side of the market is that inventories remain very very low, uh, in part, especially in existing home sales. Uh, because people aren't willing to sell their homes into what they perceive to be a falling uh, price market. But if the prices don't fall, then maybe they're more willing to sell. So Just got about 30 seconds left. Um, I don't know if you've talked to Ira Jersey today. What's happened in the Treasury market? We were at 556 yesterday. Uh, sorry, 356 yesterday, and now we're at 337. We dropped you know, 20 basis points. Yeah, that's primarily about PPI and the continuation of the feeling that the Fed will be able to pause sooner than later. Um, you know, some other positive, you know, bad is good. So some other, you know, lower retail sales numbers and things like that today make people think that maybe we are headed for that soft landing after all. All right. So the Treasury uh, market um, really moved by the PPI. I guess the final demand month over month number um, is the most stark at a drop of a half a percent. Um, but we got some real slowdown story news in terms of retail sales, uh, in terms of PPI, in terms of, I guess, industrial production at least came in in line with uh, the S. No, industrial production month over month also down 0.7 percent. We were looking for a drop of 0.1 percent. So Real drops there. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Erica Edelberg there, MBS strategist, mortgage-backed security strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence, talking to us about the mortgage rates and the housing market. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Now, one of the major stories that is moving this market this morning, it's on the stock market, sort of in the bond markets, definitely in the currency market. Dollar-yen, 128 handle, as of course we had the BOJ overnight say, 
well, actually, we're not going to make any changes. That, of course, shocking the market given their last meeting. They actually widened the bands of their yield curve control. Who better to break this all down and what it means for the American listener is Ben Emmons, head of fixed income and managing director for New Edge Wealth. Of course, he's joining the program to talk all things Japan and, frankly, why we should care. Ben, walk us through it. Morning, Kriti. Yeah, why should we care about this? Because, you know, it's a technical story and the Bank of Japan has really specific communication about how it wants to conduct its policy, really, really different in the Federal Reserve. But why we should care is that, you know, one, uh, Japan is this, you know, place where a lot of money is there and has been over the years reinvested outside of Japan in treasury bonds, in stocks, in commodities, emerging markets, most of all because the Japanese yen being weak or weaker at times, and especially when Kuroda took uh, office and Japanese interest rates being negative, it was a cheap source of funding, so to speak. And so you can borrow at negative rates at a cheap currency and reinvest that into higher yielding assets. And that's why you should care. That's why investors should watch what this Bank of Japan is going to do as it looks like that it will really change this policy that's been in place since uh, 2016. When do you think they're going to change it? And then what are the reverberations going to look like in markets? Yes, so there was a lot of anticipation today, Matt, that they may make the final change. I think there was somewhat of, more of a speculative rumor in the market that officially confirmed by the official. But during this press conference, in between the lines, Karuna did hint that like, the more tweaks are, are, could be coming. So he may take just a very tactical opportunity to use his last press conference in March to make another tweak to the policy just to set the new governor for... Okay, you know, here you have it. It's pretty flexible now. You can do what you want with it. And most of all, you know, the inflation data is, is far above the Bank of Japan's uh, target, right? Tonight's inflation data will come out, it's like a 4%. And Japan is very energy dependent. So I think there is concern within Japan that they, they can't go on with the policy that's, that's in place. They have to change it. Then let's talk about the trade here specifically. If we're talking about kind of the read through from the BOJ to say the U.S. Treasury market, what might that look like? Well, for one, Kriti, I think that we've seen it to an extent, at least in December when Kuda announced the first change, that Japanese investors seem to be, you know, fewer of them participating in Treasury auctions. So I think that's one effect that you could see coming through but the more important one was that the yen is appreciated as yeah it's appreciated in value since and has been really the contributor to the weakness of the dollar and the weakness of the dollar is the big macro factor that's seeing financial markets currently it's leading to emerging markets revive it leads to uh, european markets revive i think that's the big trade here that as they change that policy and the yen has strength and the dollar gets more downdraft, emerging markets, European equity markets, other markets outperform. I think that's the trade, the foreign markets relative to, yeah, I say, Japanese and U.S. markets. All right. Uh, we are looking at right now a U.S. 10-year down at 338. 
Um, a substantial, yep. a substantial drop from where we saw it yesterday, right? We're off already today, 17 basis points, which is a huge move. I think Erica Edelberg said she really thinks it's the, the miss in terms of PPI, um, you know, I guess to the good side, right? A drop of more than we expected that pushed it down so much. Um, Ben, what does that mean to you in terms of the Fed also? Um, you know, this uh, narrative that inflation is coming down pretty quickly seems to have been confirmed by today's data. Yeah, the narrative is definitely shifting. I think Master yesterday declared that, that the Fed is really quelling inflation. And even Barr today in a live Q&A with the Wall Street Journal this is good news for fallacy here that this is, that the inflation is coming off a bit quicker than anticipated. And even though Ballard is the most hawkish person and wants to continue to raise rates above 5%, I think the narrative is shifting to they can bring it back to 25 base point rate hikes and be in March, stop the tightening cycle, at least for a period of time, BSS. That's since uh, uh, last year in June, July, Matt, only at that time, the most were actually out of guard with a rapid increase of inflation uh, in the subsequent months. I think this time we're in a situation where it may be decelerating a bit faster, and therefore the Fed can this time move through this pause that everybody's been anticipating so much, and then we'll just have to see what happens. So I think that's where we're at. All right, Ben, thanks very much. Ben Emmons, uh, they're talking to us about uh, the BOJ. Joining us in the studio, which we really appreciate. Monica, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Let's uh, talk about, first of all, your expectations. Have they changed? You know, we, we've we've noticed a shift um, uh, amongst our guests over the past couple of months in that they were very pessimistic about 2023, and it's... Uh, we're now hearing more and more people say they expect a soft landing. Well, when it goes to the U.S., honestly, our world is goes to the second half uh, of next year, and we haven't changed that much our expectation. Where we have been uh, upgrading the expectation is on the euro area, and again, gas prices is definitely one of the reasons, and on China, uh, due to a faster than expected uh, reopening. So um, shallow recession uh, possibly in the in the U.S. Germany struggling in the euro area, but flattish growth. Yesterday, 2. yesterday, Chancellor Schultz told John Micklethwaite he doesn't expect a recession this year. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> but you know because of the proximity in and the energy dependence, definitely German and its industrial production is what uh, it's a matter of concern for Europeans. Well, one of the growing consensus as well, and we've talked about this with many of our guests on the show, is simply that we're going to see a soft landing in, in the U.S. and in Europe. And in fact, a lot of people are turning very bullish on Europe altogether, despite the war in Ukraine becoming an ongoing issue. Is that an issue that is now just getting pushed back a year? Well, after one year, obviously, uh, this is a, a terrible situation. But when it goes to the energy dependence, I think that Europeans have done a lot in order uh, to dilute uh, a bit uh, the, the dependence from the uh, from the gas out of uh, out of Russia. So all in all, after one year, we are in a fairly better position. But even with that commodity uh come down, for lack of a better term, we're still seeing extremely high inflation in the Netherlands, in the UK, um, across Europe. Uh, those are just the worst places. But uh, talk to us a little bit about how long that's actually going to last before we start to see some semblance of normal again. 
We think that inflation is going to shift from energy into core food, for example. So it is really broad-based. And if I look at our expectation for next year, we are still above 7%, uh, which is definitely uh, much, much higher uh, than what is in the, in the US and above the target of the ECB, having in mind that wage inflation, unfortunately, is not there. Uh, in terms of investments, you want to get back to bonds and look at entry points for equities. So you're not pessimistic when it comes to the markets. I would say that we are cautious. Um, you need to disentangle economic recession from profit recession. And we do believe that we are in a profit recession at the co corporate level. And this is what is making us today uh, more worried. Then when we move along the year, we do expect uh, producer uh, price prices uh, get uh, a little bit uh, milder. You need labor cost uh, to, to fade a bit, and this should uh, uh, leave, some, uh, le leave out some pressure on the margins and help uh, earnings to, to recover. And this is where you might change uh, the emphasis of your portfolio being on capital preservation going into risk accumulation. In the second half. Yeah. What, what's going to be the, I mean, other than the shift in the calendar, What's going to be uh, the, the point that shows you it's time to go back in? The central bank's pivot. So when uh, the, the Fed and ECB will be there, this will for sure give some more uh, clarity uh, to us in the positioning. Well, we're speaking about split positioning. You're now starting to see in the debt markets, once again, people very bullish on European equities, but also getting a little bit more bullish on European debt as well. What could change that in the face of the ECB now looking to slow down? Well, should the uh, ECB um, go uh, too too far and, and too fast, uh, this might be really detrimental uh, for the economy that itself is much more fragile yeah. and less resilient than, than the U.S. It's a bigger so, problem than the Fed. The Fed can overshoot, you're saying, but the ECB needs to be much more careful. Yeah, you know, it's really an heterogeneous picture. I think about Germany, Italy, France, Spain, different countries with different economic future and resilience. Well, how can they then already make forecasts on what they're going to hike in March then? We're talking about reporting, I believe, from yesterday or maybe Monday, where they're talking about 50 basis points of a hike in, in February 2nd, I believe, is the ECB meeting, and then 25 followed in March. How can you even look that far? Well, we might be, uh, you know, also uh, be critics on what the ECB is saying. Uh, to us, it is really important that it is clear that their focus is uh, fight inflation, but going back to financing condition, uh, this is what they should really uh, look at and what should be plugged into uh, the forward guidance back again. I mean, Francois Villeroy today told Francine, you can't look that far, right? Um, which I think was smart. Uh, they're sticking with 50 for February, but... Um, who knows what's going to happen in March? I guess that's pretty far out for the U.S. as well. We can't uh, get a clear consensus on whether the Fed is going to go 25 or 50 um, before that on February 1st. Well, we are we stay in the camp of the 25 and 75 up to the uh, people. So we have this uh, 525 and 325, 350 uh, on the ECB. What we did on our side was to uh, try to stress this hypothesis having higher terminal rate. Well, you end up with lower growth, even a protracted recession, and inflation that eventually does not correct that much, in particular in Europe, where it is not demand-driven. It's really uh, mostly on energy. By the way, ESG themes is something that you're paying close attention to. There seems to be a bit of a backlash, at least here in the U.S., um, on ESG. Do you feel that in Europe? 
Not really, maybe. Uh, this might be related to uh, our attention to renewables, the need to get faster uh, in order to get a strategic autonomy and energy independence. So on that front, at least, uh, we are moving quite you're, fast. You're concerned more with the E, it seems, than the S and the G. Well, I think that uh, are, the three of them are quite important. Think about the S, uh, the sure uh, issuance that we got last year. Social is going to be quite a relevant subject uh, moving forward. Inequalities are uh, back on track, unfortunately. And on the uh, again, it's uh, we have done a lot and we will continue to do a lot. Is, is the inequality, you think, more of a concern in Europe? I mean, do you have... Uh, are, are you further behind in terms of, for example, gender equality on boards than we are here in the U.S.? I'm more worried, not on gender inequality, because this is uh, really something on top uh, of the list. It's really on income inequalities in the aftermath uh, of a very um, difficult period to think about the pandemic, how low income people uh, have been uh, hit uh, by that or by all the immigration waves that uh, that we are seeing. So social is really a top spot in, in Europe. All right. Well, great having you in the studio. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you stopping by. Monica Defend there. She is a head and a chief strategist at Amundi Institute. It's Europe's largest asset manager, manager talking to us about her outlook for 2023. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're going to talk a little bit right now. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of days because our next guest was on Bloomberg Business Week the other day. Were you in the room there, Pretty? Probably not with her, but... I think on... you were in the room. I feel like maybe you were leaving when she was coming in. Anyway, hey. Shaheen Contractor uh, joins us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's the ESG Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and I always find it fascinating to talk to you, Shaheen. Just because you're so good at your job. Thank you. Mainly. But um, we, we were talking with Monica <laughs> Defend earlier from Amundi, and she's Italian. And it struck me that, you know, Europe is still fully embracing ESG. Um, whereas here in the U.S., we've had such a backlash that we don't even bother to talk about it anymore. What, what's, the, what's the division? Is, that, is my anecdotal experience represented in the, in the data? Yes, Matt. So, so very much so. Just to put a few numbers around it, the U.S. ESG ETF flows in 2022 they dropped 90 percent from 2021, so 9-0. While Europe sort of continued to show strength, it definitely slowed, but less than the broader market. Now, on one side, you have to sort of realize that Europe has more favorable regulation, which has sort of driven it forward. It's got fund labeling, all that stuff has promoted fund rebranding, so non-ESG into ESG. The U.S. sort of, I feel like the growth in the U.S. traditionally was because of a lot of, a few investors putting large chunks of money, creating this concentration risk, and we're starting to see that unravel. Who well, like you? Few investors like BlackRock. You mean like no, like like the Finnish pension fund, right? They seeded two ESG ETFs in the U.S. with one billion in allocation each. And uh, last year, for example, Calstars and these this group of pension funds seeded BlackRock's uh, carbon transition fund. So that again created another jump in assets. And then, if that goes out, if that stuff's coming in, 
uh, people cry. That's what we saw in 2022. <laughs> well, Shaheen, let's go even further back to 2020. I remember one of the stories then being that ESG ETFs were surging in, in popularity stateside, and it was really a function, if you look deeper in, about what the components were, right? If you yeah. want a tech trade, you go to the ESG ETFs because the exposure is, is better just from an environmental perspective. How much of the appeal of ESG ETFs in the U.S. three years later is still a function of tech? So I think you're referring to performance, sort of like when tech was outperforming, everyone cheered. When tech went down, sort of we slowed down in flows. I think that has a lot to do with it, at least the slowdown. Yeah. I think if you go back to 2020, also the large jumps in flows were also due to things like clean energy. So clean energy went from $8 billion in 2019, so $8 so sorry, 8 million to 10 billion, million to billion. Now you can imagine what that does for top line numbers. It just takes it straight up. So there were many pieces of this that caused the growth and that has, has caused this deacceleration also that we see. One, one of the other big differences I note between Europe and the US is gender diversity. Now they have mandated gender diversity in many uh, European countries on boards, on boards. But when it comes to who's running the shop. Um, in the U.S., I feel like it's far more likely uh, that you find a woman at the helm than in, in Europe. So we can compare board numbers and sort of one level down, which is maybe, maybe not one level down, but sort of female executives. What you said is interesting because that's true. And in, in Europe sort of leads in terms of women on boards because they're, it's mandated by law. They have to. But if you look at the U.S., it leads on female executives. So it's very clear that that sort of flips around. The U.S. doesn't have any policies, doesn't have any mandates. That actually took a back step. But they do have a higher share of female executives than, than Europe. In finance, uh, well, we just had um, a female-run ETF mm. on last week, and she was saying that there are not nearly enough women in that area of finance, in ETFs. Wouldn't it make sense, though, to, to, to want, as an investor, more diversity um, in your fund managers, just like you want more diversity in your investments? Of course, I think if that's, you're if you're yeah. if you're focused on reducing volatility, for example. Yeah, of course. So you can take, you know, leading a company to be kind of akin to like, you know, fund management or leading a fund. It's the leadership. And we found we did this interesting study and we found that sort of when we back tested women on boards, we found that it led to low volatility across most regions. It didn't lead to better returns across all regions, but it did lead to lower volatility. So I translate that to sort of women in leadership positions can bring about some benefits in the form of diversity. Well, I also have said then ask how much of that is even a factor on the U.S. side then? So in the U.S., we did see low volatility and lower and sort of high returns in Europe. We did, we saw the same. Uh, in APAC, we actually didn't see any correlation with returns, but we did see low volatility. So I think the volatility piece is across the board. So you're going to come on our ETF program this afternoon, uh, 1 p.m. Yes. What are we going to talk about? Probably this ESG ETF um, US flows that we the just Delta, discussed yeah. in the beginning. Sort of, there's a lot of confusion and misconception around why the US has fallen so much. Everyone attributes it to the backlash. I think it has nothing to do with the backlash. You don't think it's because of it's the sort the of anti woke sentiment? Not at all. Not at all. What do you think it is? So there are three things. First is concentration risk. 
assets have grown because of large of one allocations. When the market sort of slows down or when those allocations taper off, it's very noticeable. The second is model portfolio changes. A lot of money sort of moves out on one single day, which is sort of not necessarily ESG. You can have a, f a fund that basically doesn't want equity anymore and it goes to cash and it just sells its ESG positions. That's the second. And the third one is clean energy. Clean energy just came off its highs of 2021, returned back to averages and contributed to that downturn. And this is kind of like the tech uh, hypothesis that so, Critty was presenting. So uh, no, not for clean energy because clean energy surged because Biden came into power in late 2019. So it surged to 2020 and 2021 in anticipation of favorable clean energy policy, and that manifested, I guess, in the IRA. And then we're coming back down to averages. Interesting. All right, so uh, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about um, diversity as well. I wonder if there isn't a problem in terms of the taxonomy, you know, because. It's so difficult to tell one person's idea of ESG is very different from another person's, and we haven't really standardized it. Yeah. Um, I also wonder if you could break the three apart. You know, many people are concerned with the E, but not as much about the S and the G as we just um, as we just kind of stated in Europe. You know, they're fighting for the E, but they don't really seem to care that much about the S and the G, even though they had the mandates in place yeah. on the on the actual retail and consumer level, they're just not as concerned about it. So I think with the definition of ESG, so you're right, ESG is subjective. Like I can think, you know, genetically modified crops are a solution for world hunger and you can think that sort of the evil thing out there. So that makes it... Wait, that is good or bad? No, no, you, people might have differing opinions. Like GM crops are co pretty controversial. I might think they're great, you might not. It's 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 like a subjective call, right? Nuclear power, for example? Yes, subjective. The Germans think Very it's subjective. the biggest evil that there could be. And right. everyone Somebody else seems to think it's clean energy. Exactly. So that becomes that sort of makes me believe that regulators and actually classifying it in a taxonomy is the only way though I mean good luck to them right <laughs> trying to deal with the subjectivity but what's what's the other way and you said breaking up ESNG I don't know I mean at the end of the day they're all non-financial indicators which is how I see things just you know getting a view of the material non-financial ESRG risk that might impact the company. Now, you've been studying this, though, for years. Yes. What's the solution? Uh, again, materiality. So different ESG issues impact different sectors. Like for mining, I would say, you know, safety is very important because it's a dangerous industry and it can lead to sort of mine shutting down, loss of productivity. Cement is very carbon intensive, so I would say the E or, or carbon is more important. So it's very specific to each industry. So you can't really separate three because different things matter for different sectors fascinating fascinating stuff yeah. all right shaheen thanks so much for joining us pleasure having you in the bloomberg interactive broker studio shaheen contractor is an esg research analyst with bloomberg intelligence let's bring in uh dana telsey right now chief research officer and ceo of telsey advisory group to talk about uh what's going on with the consumer as it looks like Dana, first of all, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, it looks like this market is all of a sudden concerned about a recession, looking for safety and selling off risk assets. Um, when you look at the U.S. consumer, it's a huge part of whether we get into a recession, right? Aren't we still seeing you know, uh, consumers out there with decent bank balances that aren't at all over leveraged and still ready to shop? 
a couple things. Yes, you are still seeing a consumer, which is by all intents and purposes healthy, but there's moderation all over the place. We obviously have the retail sales figures today, which not only showed moderation in December, but don't forget that November's results were also ticked down all from original expectations, as was, November, as was the month of October. Inventory levels are coming down, which is encouraging, and you're lapping some of the supply chain headwinds that you had last year. The ability for the, of the consumer to spend is really the question mark, and we're seeing a trade down from many different income levels. And even at the high end, there's a moderation in growth from what you had seen earlier, whether it's stock market volat- volatility or real estate headwinds at the same time as you're, ha- as you're having unemployment, um, which frankly continues to remain low, but in certain industries, you're seeing a tick up in layoff. Dana, when you talked about the retail sector specifically, uh, I want to say throughout 2022, your forecast for 2023 was we're still going to see a lot of promotions, still going to see a lot of markdowns, a lot of clearance items. Is that going to be enough to entice the consumer, the American consumer, to keep spending? There certainly is a reason why they can keep spending. Do they have the ability to spend will be the question. I think as the inventory levels continue to be promoted and get leaner by the end of the first half of the year, then we'll see the the next element. I think that the wherewithal with the savings rate having dropped down is going to be one of the question marks. But across the board, we certainly have seen a a step down from the growth rate that we saw earlier in 2022. So the savings rate has dropped substantially, but the unemployment rate is still, to me, unbelievably low. I mean, 3.5%. And we've seen some decent wage gains. They haven't kept up with inflation. Am I right saying that? Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people have jobs and they have big bank balances. Um, what's your expectation for unemployment and for wage gains going forward? I think overall, there certainly is a demand for workers out there. Is it going to be satisfied? And certainly with the pullback and spending that you're getting on the consumer side, will adjustments be made? That can easily be, easily be part of it. I think the pullback, um, the consumer spending consumer spending had been so resilient for quite some time. And now the fourth quarter data is showing some, uh, some capitulation in the face of the inflationary headwinds. I think both in terms of labor and in wage growth, I think you can see wage growth perhaps moderate a little bit. And hopefully we see some jobs filled, particularly in the discretionary sector, where whether it's restaurants or other areas need, needs those employees. At what rate still remains to be seen. So, Dana, let's push ahead 12 months, or I guess 11 months down the road. Are we still going to see the same patterns that we're seeing right now going into next holiday season? I know it's early to be even thinking about that, but some of that preparation happens in just a few months. Walk us through what you think. I think overall we're going to continue to see inventory levels remain very lean. We could certainly see a pickup in margins from what you had this holiday season because I don't think the level of of inventory coming in at mismatch times will occur. And I think as you go into 2024, you'll have more stabilization, perhaps an even more resilient consumer than what you have right now. In terms of the the stores out there, the retailers, who's dealing the best and who's dealing the worst with this situation? The luxury goods companies obviously are handling it. They have limited inventory and they have a stronger consumer with the ability to pay. So you're definitely seeing that. I think you're continuing to see cosmetics um, do very well and be strong. 
given the fact that you're getting both the specialty stores and the brands performing well, and the category remains solid. I think you have a sea change going on in apparel with denim flowing, and you're seeing a pickup in other fabrications, and more of a focus perhaps on occasion wear than what, than what we've had in the past. And also look at food and essentials. You're seeing the grocers and the discounters be certainly a magnet for a greater share of wallet. What about uh, car sales? It's been a huge issue in terms of the inflation picture, and I guess we've seen a dramatic turnaround there, have we not, as financing costs just skyrocket? Yes, and it's and also the availability, too. I think that's going to be a question mark also. Definitely when I think about high-ticket items overall, I mean, you think about some of the, the relief that we've gotten at the gasoline pump. It was interesting that gas station sales even declined in the most recent month of December, given the sharp fall off in gasoline prices. But we have, I mean, you've got a double whammy there in that, for example, for the auto manufacturers, I don't know about other high-ticket items, right. but the supply is now there, and right. financing costs make it too expensive. The affordability has gone, you know, to the roof. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you saw sales of big-ticket items this month was down low single digits, and furniture sales was down even a little bit more, along with electronics and appliance sales, where for electronics and appliances, it was the eighth consecutive month of decline for the category. It's a lot of pain in retail yeah. across the yeah. board. Uh, on the big ticket, it's, it's inter- interesting mm-hmm. to see. I wonder how much the Fed pays attention to financing costs, I guess very much, right, because you see it in financial conditions. Dana, great having you on the program today. Thanks so much for joining us. Dana Telsey there. She's a chief research officer and the CEO of the Telsey Advisory Group, and she is our go-to voice when we want to talk anything uh, retail. The numbers we got out today certainly prompted that and really moved the markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.